Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Start By Listening. It's Jennifer, a.k.a. The Friendly Therapist, here with my PSE. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's Shelby. We're so glad you're back. We hope you had a lovely holiday season. Um, Hopefully, you got some rest. Maybe you ate some delicious food, maybe some cookies, Um, all things delectable. So, yeah, it was kind of nice being gone for a little bit, wasn't it? It was nice being gone, but I'm going to say I really liked coming back. I like having a schedule, and I like having, I don't know, more meaning. I know not everyone likes to work, but I don't know. I'm a worker. I'm a a worker bee. I get bored at home too easily. Yeah. Good to be back in the saddle. Well, if you ever need something to do at home, you can come to my house and I have a list, like a revolving list, because there's so much to do. So. I, maybe I'd do better at home if I had a list. I think it's just that, like, overwhelmed shutdown where it's like, I could do so yeah. many things, but instead of doing anything, I'm just going to be like, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> well, I experienced that, too. Yeah. Several, several moments during the holiday break. But I, like you, I'm glad to be back here. I'm glad to be back at work. Glad to be back into a routine. Mm-hmm. And today we have a special guest. A very special guest. We have with us Megan Jackson. She is one of us. She works at New Beginnings. <laughs> and I'm going to let her introduce herself and then we're going to just whoop, dive right in. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm going to try and be as least awkward as, as humanly possible. Um, we embrace the weird. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Um, so I just introduce myself. My yes. name is Megan Jackson, and I'm the systems advocacy specialist here at New Beginnings. Um, I have a master's in social work, um, and I have three lovely little girls at home um, who are in my life, and I'm excited to be here today. And yeah, talk about trauma and and. I don't know. See where conversation takes us. <laughs> there you go. That is beautiful because we kind of have an idea of where we want to start, but then it just takes on its own nervous system, takes on its own life. It takes on its own spiciness. Just, and you can cuss because this is explicitly so. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, God. Yes. All right. Now I'm a lot more relaxed. <laughs> we like to use the word authentic. Um, I think we say that probably like three times a week when describing our podcast. We are authentic. And yeah. Yes. Talk about trauma. Season three, all about trauma. So the first question to get this conversation rolling As someone who has worked in the court system, as someone who is still on our advocacy team, helping clients navigate the criminal justice system and how it treats victims, what are the, how does trauma, how does the term trauma resonate with you? What do you see? What comes to mind when you think about trauma? Oh, so I feel like answer 
that question like from a lot of different perspectives um you know because not only am i working within the courts here but previously um former employment i was um the case manager for a family court judge mm-hmm. and then um you know when i did my internship in school i um was with the Department of Public Advocacy, which is the Public Defender's Office. Um, so in various different roles and various different ways and, you know, starting, like, I think about when I first really got introduced to the court system of DPA, um, wonderful attorneys, wonderful staff, like wonderful people. Um, you know, I would kind of see from the perspective of um, the defendant. And, you know, a lot of people just kind of see a crime on paper and they, they don't think about how did they get there. Like, I don't think anybody grows up and says, you know, like, I want to commit a felony. Like, that's not, that's no one's, you know, <laughs> goal. Absolutely. Um, you know, and or you see um, theft. But what led to that theft? Like, were they, and it is, it's prosecuted, stealing diapers, stealing food. Um, you know, there is, thankfully, you know, in this county, we, our prosecutors, um, you know, do think about those things a little bit more than some other places. Um, and we're very fortunate for that. Um, but you kind of, the humanity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other end, you know, you see the person who was affected by that crime. So, um, I don't know, just various different perspectives in, in family court. You know, I always, and several people, I actually um, heard this phrase from um, an attorney that I was helping work under. Whenever you're in family court, you or criminal court, you see maybe people who are not the nicest on their best behavior. In family court, you see the nicest of people with the worst behavior. Um, hmm. People, you know, their children, you know, they're... Um, the anxiety, the emotional toll, um, the never-ending battle of some of those cases. Um, You see the effects of it on the children, um, you know, on the caregivers, um, just the parents. It's really really interesting because there's so many different layers to that. And then, of course, in this position, you see the effects of of trauma and in large part due to the court system, you know, to, yeah. to, to get that justice, you know, when you've already went through so much, the traumatic event, um, you're forced to kind of go through, you know, several more hoops, like in it's, and each of them are traumatic in different ways. Um, you know, the process is, is grueling mm-hmm. and how long it takes. Um, you know, I could totally, before I might not have been as empathetic to understand, like, a person being like, no, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Now I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Four years. That was one of my cases. Four years. Yeah. From and start to finish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's, you know, what's really interesting is like, you know, there's a, there's some judicial ethics that talk about the disposing of, of cases in a timely manner. And it's like, how does that apply? But also, you know, the justice system is, is to make sure that the defendant's rights are upheld. You know, and, and that's something that's really heavy. Um, it's something that can be, I think, I don't know, uh, nauseating to a degree because it's like, you know, especially for the survivor who's it's like, this person violated me. 
you know, they didn't care about my rights to safety or, you know, just human decency. Like they, you know, they violated me. And so I don't know. I, I can't, it's hard to have that discussion with clients. I think being like, you know, well, unfortunately, you know, and Marcy's law helps to some degree. Yeah. But you know, there's some issues with that too. Um, but how do you say to someone who's been so traumatized, you know, like, hey, this this process is for their rights. And it's like, I don't know, I can't imagine how difficult that might be to, to rectify in my mind, you know? Um, yeah, like, as you are talking about that, like, I think about all of my experience with, with court, like, um, in my previous employment, I worked for the state of Kentucky for child protective services and mm-hmm. I went to court like every day because mm-hmm. I was the guardian for like 40 or 50 kids in foster care. So mm-hmm. I was always in the courtroom doing yearly reviews, all kinds of things. Um, I was an ongoing worker. I wasn't investigative. So thank God I didn't have to do that. But, um, and it's intimidating. Oh yeah. It's like you walk in and you, you don't even know what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Like, can I go in this room? Can I not go in this room? Where do I sit? Mm-hmm. Where do I not sit? Um, has somebody forgotten about me? Um, what, you know, mm-hmm. my case was supposed to be around this time. And there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. Then I couldn't imagine, because that was in my foster care role as a guardian, in this role, now it's like, well, this could take four years, this could take six years, this could take three months, and then they could take a plea deal at the last moment. Mm-hmm. You can take the plea deal if they take me. There's so mm-hmm. much uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where like that acute stress, acute trauma really just boom. Mm-hmm. And the re-traumatization of a court date's coming up, a trial date's coming up, I need to prepare for this trial that's coming up, um, trial gets pushed six months. And it's mm-hmm. like, ah, let me take a step back, forget that this has to happen, mm-hmm. take time to grow a little bit, mm-hmm. heal a little bit through therapy, mm-hmm. and then here comes another date. So it's yep, toxic anxiety mm-hmm. all over again. And you saying that anxiety about entering the courtroom for a public for, for a public space it's not very accessible to the public in general absolutely not and that that's a big problem that I actually have <laughs> with the courts in general because you know and I, I think we've created this um idea of secrecy among the courts and we think oh you know secrets are safe. secrets are not safe mm-hmm. um I even to some degree feel personally that are um because certain family court cases are um open to the public like i could go down you know right now to the clerk's office say i want this case pay for copies of it i could obtain copies of it um you know court and access and things like that um but you know there are certain jdna cases and, and what those are that jdna is juvenile dependency neglect abuse so when you went for social services that would be the um closed right. yes are closed and um, it can create a lot of, um, you know, opportunities for 
injustice to happen um, for the families that are involved. And um, just, you know, if things aren't done the right way and there's no checks and balances, there's no one overseeing these things, then we've got, you know, several different layers of trauma. Um, also, you know, even in the public cases, like, or even in the open cases, um, you know, you're right. People are intimidated to go into a courtroom. But truth be told, like, realistically, you know, the, the judges, they serve the community. Um, and we can walk in there. We can sit and we can watch a hearing. Um, and I, I encourage people to do that in certain situations. They get to know who you're, who you're electing into these positions. How do they respond to the individuals in front of them? How do they treat them? Um, are they abusing their power? Um, and it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong in doing that. Um, I think it's important to be aware of, of those processes because I, I used to tell when I did in-home, I would tell some of my clients, I'd be like, hey, the only thing that separates me from you, you know, one day it could be a phone call, you know, or just, I mean, we're, we all are, you know, just doing the best we can. And sometimes we make mistakes and some people's mistakes are caught, some people's aren't. Some people have better opportunities and more help within their families, you know, and you see that a lot in family court. Um, a lot of like situations where single mom has to work, you know, X amount of jobs. Um, she has to leave her kids at home. She can't pay for a sitter or she doesn't have someone who she trusts to sit. So she leaves children in the care of an older sibling. Uh, one of the children, you know, might wander off or something and you know, she gets social services involved. She is in court for supervisory neglect. You know, that it could be any of us, you know, um, you have to do, you have to triage in those situations. Like what's most needed? Like, you know, okay, I, I know I maybe shouldn't leave my kids at home, but I, if I don't go to work, I can't pay X, Y, and Z. I can't feed them, you know? And it just becomes this cycle. Like, you know, and it just, I don't know. I, I, I really encourage people though, to, um, pay attention to how others are treated because it could very easily be one of us one day. Um, Absolutely. Like, as you're saying that, like my memory bank, I was like, Oh, when I was in college, um, I took a lot. Well, I had a sociology major as well as psychology and it was a minor in criminology, which was fascinating. And one of our assignments was to spend eight hours at the courthouse. I love that. That was the assignment. (laughs) And the assignment was, and this was in Louisville, so let me just preface that, okay? And this was not family court. This is like the old courthouse before Mm -hmm. the new one got built. And the professor said, I want you to go and sit on every floor. I want you to move around on the floor. So start on this area and then just walk and sit here. He said, I'm not telling you to stare at people. I'm not, you know, but just observe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he said, find out which courtrooms are public mm-hmm. and just walk in and sit down. Mm-hmm. I had no problem sitting in the lobby, walking up and down the floors. I had no problem just getting the flavor of that. But the moment I had to insert myself into a courtroom, I was like so filled with anxiety mm-hmm. and nervousness. And I knew I could because it's a public, mm-hmm. but I felt like 
that's not my business, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, that's not my, that's not my case or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was for like, uh, things like drugs, um, speeding tickets. Cause we went to night court too. Cause then mm-hmm. now, now you go at nighttime and you see the difference between daytime and nighttime. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize there was a daytime nighttime court in certain counties. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. that makes sense with so many cases. I just, yeah. Yes. And it was, I was like, wow, like I'm really like, Ooh, I don't want to, mm-hmm. I don't want to, but I did learn, like you said, um, I learned and I watched the behaviors of the attorneys and of the judges. And I watched and I saw like who treated their clients with respect and dignity, who did not. Mm-hmm. I was, it was very apparent. And that was based on, I was in my twenties. So I was in college. Like, mm-hmm. I had no knowledge of anything regarding anything. And I could just tell by body language. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, you know, something that I, I'll never forget um, on the very first day um, that I ever worked for um, Judge John, um, you know, he's in his robe and we're, we're walking into the courtroom and get ready to sit right beside him on the bench. And he turns to me before he opens the door and he says, if I'm an asshole, you tell me. That's the most important part of your job is that if I'm being a dick, tell me. Okay. And I was like, all right. And he's like, I, I want to know. You know, and he'd, he'd probably be like, my language. <laughs> you know, he did. And he would remind me. And I would tell him, you need to eat. You're hungry. You're giving grumpy old man. And he would he would say to people, like, I'd pass him a note, like, on the bench when he saw him getting out. Because he's a human. He gets, people get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. But he treats people, everyone, with the same level of humanity and kindness. You know, and he'll say, Sorry. I'm hungry. I'm being a jerk or sorry. I didn't sleep very well last night or you're just working my nerves. I'm sorry. We need to come back on a different day. I apologize. You know, like, but he's very, um, he lets him see that human element and he takes accountability for that. The way that people responded to him was so much better. Yeah. Um, because we're human. It's connection. It's self-awareness and realness, you Mm -hmm. know? Like people, yeah. real recognize real baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember sitting in a courthouse one time, and an attorney came out, and and I know there's not really HIPAA in court systems because that's <laughs> medical, but an attorney just walked out and just like yelled out this person's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do that. Yeah, well, I had the, to do that. <laughs> well, here's the thing, though, like. This was a lawyer that this person had been, you know, utilizing their services for years. So it wasn't just like, I've only met you one time. This person didn't even recognize their client. So mm-hmm. it was like a level of disrespect. Like, I've been working with you, but I don't even know what you look like. So I'm just going to shout into the abyss and hope you come to me. Do you see what I'm saying? That uh, versus, mm-hmm. I've also been in a courthouse before. And I've seen an attorney come out, like, looking, right? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, there you are. Very mm-hmm. friendly. You know what I And I'm like, wow. And that's the kind of stuff that I think the professor wanted us to watch and mm-hmm. notice. Because how that connection leads to feeling safe. Like, not only am I paying you a lot of money to mm-hmm. do something that I don't have the knowledge of, mm-hmm. but I want to feel safe and connected to know that you're going to do the best job you can. 
Oh, I love that you said. So I have a group of girlfriends that we're in a, like a group chat with, and um, this comes up like so frequently. Um, it's, you know, because a couple of them are going through, you know, some struggles, just past relationships and custody stuff. And they're just bidding, you know, like we're just girlfriends just bidding. And it's so often that it's like, you know, yeah, my attorney might be a great attorney, but I want them to believe in me. I want them to understand. Mm -hmm. I want them to give a fuck Mm -hmm. that I am going through this. I don't want them to talk to me like a dog. Like, it's like you could have an attorney who might not be the the most, like, just going to pull a rabbit out of, you know, their hat or whatever. But if they are fighting for you, if they they don't demean you, Mm -hmm. if they understand that, you know, and it's... In court, you're meeting people on the worst day of their lives, one of the worst days of their lives. Yeah. Even even in just like a speeding ticket circumstance, you're feeling that heart race. You know, you're. It, it's nerve wracking. It's costly. Mm-hmm. Um, and anxiety inducing. And you know, I, I think I think the ups and downs too. Like I would, you know, just seeing them talk and and you know having those conversations with my group of girlfriends, like their children. Even if you don't discuss it that you're going to court that mood there's this up and down and up and down and it's just everyone that whole familiar unit feels that so when thinking about how survivors feel before a trial when you know it gets pushed back and how many times reset 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 and it's just that up and down and they want to get off that roller coaster because who wouldn't i mean how do you heal when you like know that court's coming up how do you move on because you spend so much time staring at that calendar date and is it inches closer and closer mm-hmm. how do how do you move on you can't until court's over with mm-hmm. and, and to some degree and you know then there's what i call the fallout phase after okay. court exhausting when trial's over and i will say that with with our clientele um, our track record of having very successful cases is extremely high because mm-hmm. we're involved oh, absolutely. and because we prepare. Um, and so when there is the victory, that's what I use the word. And then there's like this high for a couple of weeks and then the fallout. It's like, because then there's all of this realization that occurs um, and can be quite traumatic for a client as well. When they say, oh my gosh, I'm the reason that this person is now incarcerated. I'm the person Mm -hmm. who spoke up. You know, I, you know, I got the ball moving, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm curious and I wonder, and I mean, I know you're not a lawyer, but you worked with a lot of lawyers. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, does that occur with lawyers as well because there's so much trauma just with secondary trauma Mm -hmm. with being exposed to the primary trauma from clients as a lawyer and i'm just do they have like a a fallout too so i know who you need to have on is another guest sometime (laughs) um she's and i'm gonna say her name and i don't think she's mine but heather blackburn she's phenomenal Mm -hmm. A phenomenal human and a phenomenal attorney. I'm always like, if I need someone, I'm calling you. You know, I mean, she just amazing person. She is a public defender. She is brilliant. Watching her in court is, I mean, 
it's like watching like a movie unfold. Um, but you know, we've had some discussions. It's exhausting. I remember going with her um, whenever I was with DPA, and, and she's been with DPA for many years. And you know, um, I loved watching her in court, of course. And you know, but then the trial's over. It's like <sighs> exhaustion. And I, I think what a lot of people could say, like, how could you defend, you know, someone who did those things? And yeah. people forget that, you know, you're not defending what that individual did. Mm-hmm. You're defending the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't get an appropriate defense, um, it makes it, if people don't play by the rules, if there isn't that checks and balances, then it makes it a whole lot easier for someone who is not guilty to be taken advantage of someone who is, you know, black, poor, you know, um, non or like English is their second language. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes it a whole lot easier for those people mm-hmm. to be victims of the system, yeah. you know. Um, so, oh, but definitely, definitely. So can I jump off of this? This is kind of changing the conversation. Go for it. Just slightly, just based on what you said. So we're on the same page. Criminal justice reform. Like, we need to ensure that people are not being taken advantage of, have rights to a fair trial, and criminal justice reform needs to happen nationwide. How moving from working with the courts, working with DPA, to now working at a victim-centered agency... With me personally, it causes a lot of inner turmoil just because not necessarily with our clients and their perpetrators, like, fuck them. Highest sentence. They're fucking sexual offenders. They're perpetrators. They need punished for what they did for the sake of our clients. Get them justice. And there's transformative justice, which is another way to seek justice. But with the criminal justice system, like what our clients are looking for when they're coming forward is justice in the criminal justice sense. And what does that look like? And how do we... How do we work with them and what that looks like? How how does that sit with you? Does your mind do the same back and forth? Like, what is the... I'm interested in how your mind works when it comes from moving from DPA and working with the courts to working with victims. Like, how your inner... Does that... I don't know if that's a very effectively asked question. No, I think I know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Because, again, I go back and forth all the time. Like, criminal justice reform is necessary, but also victims' voices are not heard enough in the criminal justice process and they need rights and they need to be heard. So how how do we reconcile that? I think that it's not a matter of necessarily the court process needing reform until we get to um, like sentencing, like pun- punishments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, and, and this is, this is, how do we reform what divides us in a courtroom? Okay. And, and when I say that, I mean, like, if you are wealthy, you are automatically, you're going to have access to bail money. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have more opportunities mm-hmm. to do certain things that look good to the court. You're going to have an opportunity to go to certain therapy and the best of the best. You're going to have the best defense team. And, you know, something that's kind of interesting going back to the DPA thing for a minute is that you would hear things like um, clients would say, I want a real lawyer. It's like your public defenders see more cases, try more cases. I mean, you want to talk about experience. They got it, you know, all. 
but they have hundreds of clients, Mm -hmm. you know, constant. How do you give when you're, when you pay someone, you know, a $10,000 retainer right off the bat, you know, that bill can jump up to a hundred thousand and you're paying it. It's a heck of a lot easier to get that individualized time. Mm -hmm. Um, They have staff that can help these people get to these resources and set them up appointment, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so it's really a matter of how do we kind of alleviate that, that, that um, inequality, inequality, because it it does. I mean, you see somebody walk in there with an attorney who's everyone knows what their retainer is. You automatically know, you know, you don't know if they put it. Well, actually, in some cases, you might, they might have had to take out a second loan. You have, you know, a mortgage or whatever. Yeah. But, but that attorney being in there says something about your status, you know, your financial status. And it's, it speaks that to them. Mm-hmm. If you're appointed a public defender, you have to say on record, you know, um, what your income is. Can you, can you pay X, Y, and Z? What assets do you have? It's all on the court record. They know exactly what you have. It's called affidavit of indigency, and each one has to be done whenever DPA is appointed. Um, so the difference in that, you know, in knowing, okay, well, this person, you know, they don't have a car. How are they going to get to treatment? How are they going to get to um, AA? How are they going to get to, can they reasonably do this? They're working, you know, X amount of hours. Or if they aren't working, they aren't able to find a job. Well, idle hands. You know, that's kind of the thought process. So I really think that there's, you know, and if we if we raise the the standard of, of what people we all have access to, you know, food and water, I think you're, you'll see a drastic reduction in crime if we don't have to fight for everything because yeah. these people have. But sorry, I could go off on a tangent, but um, whenever you look to, uh, you know, there's these there's this file room. And DPA, of course, with all these cases. And you'll notice that some of them are so thick. There's these massive, like, really strong rubber bands, you know. And it's years and years and years. Some of them are starting with, guess what, juvenile. Well, yeah, and then you're just stuck in that cycle of recidivism because you have no way of getting out because it's the cycle of poverty. Mm -hmm. But if we did everything we could then... If we exhausted all of our efforts, if, if when that person first goes to court, let's say it's a juvenile, mm-hmm. because some of the most serious offenders, it's it is they started very young, or behaviors were recognized very young. If we caught that then, and we instead of punishment, there wasn't you know jail hanging over in this big scary. It was okay. How do we heal? Let's figure out why, and we really put the focus on that. Which I think that there is there's. There's people, you know, heavily involved in this community, more so than a lot of others, um, that, you know, are seeking to to get just that. But I, I don't know. I feel like it could have prevented so many people from being victims of this one person if we had really, no one ever asks um, whenever, you know, new statutes are, are you know, put into effect and, and I don't feel like the were asked, hey, mental health professionals, you know, what do you guys think? Um, and it's it's very I they used to tell me in court they'd say, Oh, Megan went to feeling school. My best friend Nathan says that all the time. He's an attorney. He's like, Oh, you went to feeling school. And I'm like, well, you know, it's kind of like a how dismissive. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he he means it, you know, just joking. Well, but yeah. at the same time, you know, in court, you're not supposed to have a whole lot of emotion. Oh, I know, because even, like, as the verdict is being read, you are told not to show any emotion. And how it's the nervous system responding. How do you not not have emotion? And what does that even mean? Like, if I show emotion, does that mean the verdict is going to be changed? Right. It cannot be changed. You're fearful of it. You become fearful. And and how do we, how do, like, humans are emotional beings how do we take the human element out of the courtroom when it's humans who are whose lives are affected how how do we that how does that reconcile how does that make sense um you know to tell like humans that they have to behave without something that we are that is innate within us where everyone feels emotions that we lose the humanity I was always kind of like, yeah. And you forget. I can tell you. Well, we will lose our humanity. I think that's the key point is if you're taking the human element out of the courtroom, you're making it so that it's easier to sentence people to death. You know, I mean, where we're we're at in criminal justice is just the advancement of human society so far within the last couple hundred years. I mean, we used to hang witches, and now at least they have a trial. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. there's still states that sentence people to death, so I feel like you want to separate yourself as much from that yeah. as possible. We, and, that brings up an interesting thing that you talked about in the piggybacks off what you said, Megan. Taking the humanity out of the human, right? Mm-hmm. Within the court system. So again, just observing. Whether this was in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was in Louisville, whether that's in the last... 12 years I've been here in Ellensboro. I have yet to meet, no, not meet, see with my eyes, a person involved in the court system that is happy, has relaxed body language, um, has a genuine smile where the whole face lights up, I don't think I've ever seen that. It's so then I get curious, right? Why? What? What is it? Well, then I think back. Probably all the secondary trauma. And I mean, like you just said, that in the public defender's office they have hundreds of cases. Burnout. Like. Yeah, like how 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 do you show up with the best that you have? And I mean, you have to be pretty damn smart to be a lawyer, right? Like it's it's a lot of knowledge up in this head. <laughs> or a good testament. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing y'all. But seriously, like with the people that you've worked with that you oh, said yeah. are stellar, right? Like oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. So you can have all this knowledge in the world. But if you are seeing hundreds of people and you are burned out, because you are, how can you really effectively do what's best for you, mm-hmm. your client, your community, your whole, like, everybody that's behind you, your family? Like, I, But it, 
there's no joy. That's no. There's only an adoptions, an adoption, and there's still a sad component because you have to do a termination of parental rights before you do an adoption. But I used to, I used to tell people like I would visibly cry and I'd be like, I'm sorry, this is the one happy I get. I'm not, I'm not gonna like if I'm happy because they'd be like, can you take our pictures? And I'd be like, of course, but I'm a tear up. You know, I'm a human, and this is I, we don't get any of these. And the whole, and it gives me chills thinking about it. Because when there is an adoption mm-hmm. on docket, that whole courthouse is, oh, we're so excited for them. You know, because it's a small bit of joy. But, you know, I mean, it's really, it's interesting because, you know, Judge used to tell me, Megan, if you care any too much about any one case, that means we shouldn't have it. He was 100% correct. Because if you, you put your emotion into something, then you don't, it's not the best outcome. It's what you think. Mm-hmm. is best and that is overexerting you know the power as you know a judge is that it's not that it's what the law says now does the law need to incorporate and get with the times and and account for you know emotional stability and you know oh yeah at least at least trauma as possible you know absolutely um but when you get into that i know what's best for you because like in in custody, there's there's a like it's the best interest standard, the best interest of the child, and there's like eight different factors, and you kind of go down, you know, those, and you kind of, and they're a tool to guide, you know, um, but you have to kind of you have to kind of use that because you don't want to let your past experiences, your biases, you know, mm-hmm. kind of because it doesn't work that way. It just, it's, it can be unfair. We can be wrong. Our biases can be totally off. And it happens. Um, Which is even acknowledging. Yeah. As humans, we all have them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's when you find the biggest problems is when people think that they have none. Um, That's when there's a a whole lot of issues with, you know, overstepping, you know, and a judge can only, you know, rule on what's in front of them. They're not investigators. Their staff isn't investigators. They're not, you know, and a lot of judges do listen to professionals. And when you have, but it's like, again, if they don't have the resources to find these professionals, to seek help, to have them come testify on their behalf. And, you know, it all, there's so many different things that can affect people in court and so many little things that, oh, if this had been done, and I think we drive ourselves crazy with that too. Like, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have done that. You know, yeah. and how do you have kind of be at peace with that? Um, but you know, you when you said you know you don't see a lot of people with like the joy that you can't, and that's there's not good days in court. Worst days of people's life, you know, most of the time, and. Um, I can tell you, I remember, because I would type the um, the domestic violence orders, you know, for the judge to sign, you know, on the bench. And I would go and I would kind of um, case manage is what we called it, the cases um, beforehand with the help of the attorney from legal aid. And um, the Oasis advocate would be there. And I remember after every single DD docket day, I would lay there like, what, what, what's going to happen if I didn't? Oh my gosh, what if they, and, and you worry, you worry, did I make an error that could cost someone their yeah. safety or their life? And it happens. The weight of that, mm-hmm. you know, heavy. the weight of that is so heavy. Um, and it wasn't my burden to bear, 
I was just, you know, sad. ultimately his signature. But I would look at him and know how he cares about people. And I would think, I can't, you know, I can't let, if I didn't do something right and he accidentally missed it, you know, it's just your mind, it goes crazy with it. Well, and, you know, when just not, I'm not going to say talk about like court stuff, but just in general as human beings, when we are burned out, when we are exhausted, when we're not getting enough sleep for our body, eight hours does not mean everybody in this world needs that, okay? Each body is different. Each nervous system is different. When we don't have the time to go to the bathroom, when we don't have the time to eat, right? Just basics. That affects our ability to comprehend, to listen, to engage. And I think because our society is so focused on go, 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 busy, busy, busy. Well, let me see if I can get like four or five more things done. Mm-hmm. That's when, like, we, we've all seen this in our history of working. We see when clients come through our doors and you realize quickly, oh my gosh, horrible injustices have been done to this person, this family, because they went through the cracks. Because mm-hmm. they got overlooked. They mm-hmm. got missed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I believe that the answer to many things in life is to do less mm-hmm. and rest. Yeah. <laughs> but the world does not operate on Jennifer's <laughs> perspective. It needs to. But we'll go there a different <laughs> You can be more thorough. You can because you have the space literally, mm-hmm. to look at all of this information instead of just right here. Mm-hmm. And, and if we looked at, okay, is this a crime of, can I say crime, that was committed out of necessity to survive? Let's take everything off docket that was didn't actually hurt. Like, okay, someone steals diapers from Walmart. I'm, on, I'm obviously, like, you shouldn't steal. Like, But, but we can... Forgive those things. We can have them come. Okay, maybe have them come to like a pre-trial thing where it's not actually in front of the judge. Give them resources. Have them, you know, um, provide them with um, all like community, like people who can, community partners, people who can help assist them in buying diapers or be like, okay, listen, you know, you have to sign up for this program and show me that you have. And then, and then you know, yeah. if you don't, okay. That frees up the judge's docket to deal with the things that need more time and attention. We can reduce our docket size. Absolutely. And if we reduce our docket size, we can do, okay. And, and you know, it's like, oh, well, less cases in a day. Less, you're doing more for those. You're preventing them from having to keep coming back. Let's close these. Let's, we bog down the dockets with like these resets, resets. I understand why they have to happen, but they have to happen because there's so many others. And to not forget them, you literally have to put them on docket. So that you're reminded of them. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's 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 not see them as a number. Let's see them as an individual. And kind of going back to the taking the humanity out of the human. How many times have you heard oh, their they, their eyes were dead? They showed no emotion. Mm-hmm. We're telling them they can't. They can't. Not only are we telling them that they can't. We're forcing them. We're forcing them, and their nervous system is responding, and it's shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could just be dissociating yeah of course yeah but one of the worst things that i have ever seen in a courtroom was a young man who i mean a boy 
mm-hmm. a child. Um, you know, who... Sorry. There were multiple victims. Um, you know, he goes through his trial. He sees the entire, like, all of the loved ones for the family. Mm-hmm. You know, the victims are all there. He's solicited to the impact statements. And you look over and there's no one. Sorry. <laughs> there's no one sitting behind him. The way to that. Um... And, and how angry his response was, how taunting he was at those families. And it's like, I think that in some way it felt taunting to him that they had, like, even, you know, and they weren't no longer there and he took their lives. And that's obviously horrific. He never had anyone. There was no, he never, he doesn't have human emotion because he was never shown affection and love. I mean, yes, you see people all the time who commit horrible crimes, but you usually see someone in the courtroom that loved them. Maybe even if it's just one person, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't various, you know, mental health disorders that that would cause people to do horrible things or, you know, I, I don't know, but that's a very valid point because here's the thing. Here's the thing. I always say, I detest I hate, I love, whatever you want to, intolerant people. However, because I am intolerant of intolerant people, therefore, me too. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. So if we look at this idea of transformative justice, restorative justice, whatever words you want to call, it has been around for thousands of years within the indigenous folk. But it was in the 70s when actually things really changed and criminalization really began with the domestic violence movement. It was we need to hold perpetrators accountable, right? That's really began the floodgate of the courts being processing of domestic violence and perpetration and jail time, like it was in the 70s. And that was because the movement radicalized and came forward and women said, no more. Okay, mm-hmm. that's how all this started. And then what happened, and now we're in, what, 2023? So how many years later? 40-some years later? Mm-hmm. Now we're understanding and realizing, uh-oh, we left behind some people. Mm-hmm. Because... Perpetrators just don't wake up and are born perpetrators. I mean, there are a few who have yeah. psychopathic tendon. That's a whole different deal. No and that's a very small, very small number of people. Very small. So they were created because of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I'll go one step farther. And here's where it's going to get even spicier. Okay. So all three of us in this room identify as women. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Biologically, we have the ability to have children. Mm-hmm. Okay? Therefore, as women, we are birthing our own perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're, as a woman, you're, your dating pool is also your predator. And if, you're, if you identify as, if you're a straight woman and, and you 
I mean, think about that. Think about that. Like your yeah. your dating pool is literally like by by dating, you are putting. Well, you shouldn't be, but I mean that boggles my mind. You know, to think about that, yeah. like we're put like it, the our risk safety. of our safety is at risk twenty four seven. It's at risk the moment it's five fifteen and I'm walking out this parking lot at nighttime and it's dark. It's at risk. When it's 9 a.m. and I'm walking in, it doesn't matter if it's dark. Mm -hmm. It gives it more opportunity. Mm -hmm. But as women, and and this might be something we talk about, like like on our wrap-up, Shelby. Yeah. But I think we have to begin to own and be accountable for our role in raising Mm -hmm. sexual offenders. Yeah, and and, and think about it, too. You know, if you look at all of the, well, I should say all of them, most of the most notable serial killers, what is the relationship that you will hear? <laughs> mommy, and look, I'm going to say this, and I know it's stereotypical, but it's mommy issues because. Why do they hate women? Because there was some form of caregiver neglect, trauma, um, embarrassment, mm-hmm. ridicule. All of that. And they target women. And I think it's interesting. I heard this theory about how um, we saw less serial killers, um, you know, whether it was that they weren't caught or, but as a whole, we, you know, our nation saw a reduction in serial killers. Like, the, you know. So anyway, sorry. Got kind of tongue-tied there. Um, since abortion was legal. Why do you think that is? Because a mother who doesn't want to, ch- like, if you don't want to be a mother, how can you be forced to be, to nurture this child, to love this child, to pay attention to this child when you resent it? It's not just serial killers. That was a study done by the people who wrote Freakonomics. Yeah. They found yes. abortion records. And once abor- abortion yes. was decriminalized and women had access to it, yeah. we saw a reduction in crime overall because mm-hmm. there weren't people in poverty being forced to yes. birth children that they could not emotionally or financially care or for. The, the children like if you're in a horrible db situation mm-hmm. and you don't you know then that prevents a child from witnessing that and we prevented a perfect you know yeah it's, it's so i mean it's it is astonishing to me like and you know i i think about you know because i i'm a survivor of, of db um and when i think about that i, I immediately i'm like i go to that and i, I went to their mother Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went to his mother and said, hey, this is happening. And instead of, and who mm-hmm. was also a survivor of DD. Mm-hmm. And when I went, to, no, you're a liar. You know, you're making this up. And I was like, because I thought I could, she's a survivor. She'll understand. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, she'll, she will, she'll want them to, to get help. She, you know, she will, because remember, I, I thought I loved this person. I thought this person loved me. Mm-hmm. So I went to the human who loved him the most. Did yeah. she ever hit you with a, it's not that bad, or he would never, or she hits back, it's her fault too. It was, uh, well, what did you do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I now, and I remember I go, what did you do? And she's like, they're not the same. Yes, they are. Well, if you think about it, and I'm a child of the 70s, growing up, I was told this is how a girl behaves. 
this is what girls do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I distinctly remember, and I actually processed this memory in therapy because it was that traumatic for me. I remember being about eight or nine years old and being told that I had to serve iced tea to my uh, relatives that were men. Remember this? I would have thrown a fit. I did. <laughs> I said, I mean, that's a lot. They have two legs. They can come get it themselves. I said this. Now, back in the 70s, you know, you didn't talk back. But I came of the house with my mother was very progressive for her time. And she allowed me to be very opinionated, which family members told her, you need to beat her ass. I get that. So she was told that, right? Again, so this is the environment that my mother came from, right? Hear this, right? And so, again, I said, why? They have two legs. They can get up and come get their own tea. They can. Right? Logical. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, my mom said, because that's what we do. And that stuck with me, right? For Obviously, because I had to process that in therapy. Mm-hmm. But think about the messages, whether blatant or hidden. Mm-hmm. Patriarchy. Yeah. Not only that. The messages that we feed into and we perpetuate. Oh, yeah. Ingrained masculinity. Yep. Uh, toxic masculinity. Ingrained toxic. Yeah. I remember, because I have two brothers, I remember vividly. I can still, if I close my eyes, I can smell the grass. I can feel, like, the sprinklers. It was, it was a summer day. Those sprinklers, like, the water on my skin, like, seriously, that vividly. Um, the boys were playing outside. And I like to play with them, too. They had all their friends over. None of them had. It was super hot. I mean, I'm talking like a 102-degree day. And um, my dad used to let us pull out the sprinkler in the field. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, so. And I remember they had some of the neighbor boys over there playing and running through. And they all had their shirts off. Mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, well, you know, they had their shirts off. I want to run through the cold water, too. I mean, I was tiny. I'm talking like six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. I take my shirt off and I run through the sprinkler. And I remember, like, the neighbor being like, what are you doing? Put your shirt. Like, I was, like, you know, like, I, there was shame. And I instantly felt that shame. And I was just like, I would have never thought, you know, like, mm-hmm. and it, it's so weird because, you know, not that long ago, like, Lily, her boy cousins were playing outside. And I remember always feeling, like, ashamed mm-hmm. of, the like, my body. That was, like, very first time that I felt shame associated with my body or that I was dirty mm-hmm. and that for, for just being a small child running through a spring door, none of those boys were looking at me that way. Not one of them. I, I probably, they were, we were so interested in running back and forth through that sprinkler, mm-hmm. but that had to be a moment for them too. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. now they noticed. And Oh, this become now it's, Oh, those aren't just, you know, body parts. Those are something that we should try and seek to see because we're not supposed to see it. How did that, how did it affect them? You know, was that a moment for them? Yeah. Did they suddenly look at little girls, you know, did they start to to notice that? Because they didn't. I mean, truly, we were, they were maybe two, three years older than me. You know, I mean, it, it was children playing. But Lily, you know, she was wanting to run through the sprinklers or in, in play outside and with her boy cousins. We we'd actually got one of those like blow up water side things and she she was like, you know, I was like, Lily, Lily, put on your shirt, put on your shirt. 
In my head, I was saving her from that moment. But I was so insistent that she was like, and I, I mean, it just hit me. Like, it was just like, what? I mean, yeah. and it's like, I was like, I'm sorry. There's nothing shameful about your body. And, and people, you know, because there were adults there too. And I had to have that discussion with her. Like, I'm so, because she was like, what, mom? Like, she didn't understand it. You know, I just, I don't know. There's so many things that just, yeah. it's a, it's interesting to see how, and I'm like, I wonder, what was my mom's first moment? You know, when did she first feel that shame? And, and those boys were not only were they seeing an, an adult um, come and, and, and state like them, because I truly believe that that woman came out there like that because she was concerned. I truly, I really think that she was. What happened to her? Because we were just kids. We were other kids. Did something happen that she wasn't, she couldn't trust a young boy when she was younger? And, you know. Absolutely. That's where the curiosity comes, right? Yeah. What is this lineage? Yeah. Where does this start? And like you had said earlier, if we do things at the front end, we could do so much more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the old saying, you know, the babies are drowning in the river. And you're just trying to pull them out from the riverbanks and save as many babies as you can, knowing you can't save every baby. Mm-hmm. But there's no one who's going upriver, right? Mm-hmm. Up group primary prevention, right? To say, how'd they get in the river in the first place? Mm-hmm. And when we begin to level the field with equity, yep, and where people have equal access to basic human rights, medical, dental food, clothing, shelter, education. And legal access to a public defender who isn't burnt out and not the corruption of, oh, I can just pay my way out of jail. Mm-hmm. Because that's a lot. I mean, think of it, bond. And, and kind of going back to that, you know, that instance and what you're, you were saying about, you know, how, how do we, you know, at the front end, I think that that woman was, and it just dawned on me, she was trying to save me from her trauma. Mm-hmm. Quite possibly. You know, it, I mean, and if we do everything from a point of like that, that just, you know, anxiety inducing fear, mm-hmm. and we don't do it from a, a point of like healing and calm, then we're just, we're, we're not helping. We're just have, you know, there's somebody who's, we'll talk about us, you know, 20 years down the road and think, oh, this was really traumatizing for me. We're trauma dumping on others. Yes. Our own. We're trying to unfeeled. save ourselves in instances of other people and other, you know, I, I have no experience like that. And that woman likely could have been trying to save me from what she felt, but she created it, you know? But your recognition of putting that on your own daughter and realizing in the moment, oh, yeah. I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Now I can help her process her feelings of what I'm going through. And like, why did mom say that to me? Now she's not going to be left to fester with that right. for 30 years mm-hmm. and dwell on it. And she has that trust and connection of a healthy relationship. Oh, right. right. I tell her all the time, I'm like, because I fuck up all the time. And I, I sometimes I feel like parenting is just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that my child has as little trauma 
to heal from from me as humanly possible. That's the, mm-hmm. but that doesn't. I'm gonna mess up. Okay. But I'm, yeah. All I don't even have kids and I mess up. I'm just saying it's everybody fucks shit up because there is no right like way. There is no right answer. Mm-hmm. There is, however, the path to um, making decisions and having conversations filled with compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. the key. That's mm-hmm. and yeah, like, she should have a heal from my mistakes, mm-hmm. yeah. and that way she'll know they're my mistakes, you know, and and that she doesn't carry the burden of that she wasn't wrong. I I was wrong, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry for any pain it caused her. But at least she, you know, I hope that she'll never have that. Oh well, was it my fault? That self doubt, mm-hmm. you know, that um, well, my my mother loves me. If my mother loves me, then she must be right. No, girl, <laughs> you know, I made mistakes. And that's when learning really happens. Like, I think about those really pivotal moments in my own life when my parents have said, yeah, I really messed up. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like years later. Like, it was like in the moment. Um, And I'm like, wow. Right. And I think about like in working with clients, Mm -hmm. when I screwed something up, like it is it's it, it'd be interesting to, for people to be applying the law. Like when I apologize to a client, mm-hmm. like for example, something as simple as my phone not being on D and D. Yep. Done it. And it rings. Right. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Didn't think right. It mm-hmm. happens. It's a mistake. And I'll say, I am so sorry that I neglected to put my phone on D and D or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Please accept my apology. Uh, I'm going to get up and I'm going to put this on D&D. And in the future, I'm going to be very aware. And clients are like, what? You don't have to apologize. No, yes, I do. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, When you apologize to a kid, they're Mm -hmm. like, <laughs> and it makes them more able, I think, to say, I'm sorry when you're Yes, because you're modeling. Mm-hmm. If you've never learned, just like for people who've never learned how to say I love you, if you've never learned how to receive an apology, how to give an apology, how do you know how to mm-hmm. do it? Yeah. Yeah. And it, oh my gosh, it, it all cycles back to like, just, I mean, it's amazing how like this conversation is flowing, but like. You know, thinking about if there's a mother who never tells her son that what they're doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. They never learn how to apologize. They never learn that that's inappropriate behavior. They never, you know, and then all of a sudden they're standing in front of a judge who, when at home, you know, if they could have had healing and love and, you know, or just even, not that they aren't loving mothers I should, or, or parents, I shouldn't say that, that maybe they just didn't learn. How to apologize or that accountability that comes with that and how to say I'm sorry, then maybe we would have had a situation that could have been they didn't get there. Mm-hmm. They didn't get there because they learned that empathy. They learned I'm sorry. They took in when someone said I'm sorry to them and it being painful and and those parents need resources. Exactly. And those resources come from a social justice lens of how we exist as human beings in this yep. world. Yeah. Because I will tell you, like doing uh, victim impact statements with mm-hmm. clients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating. I want to do it with children. 
Because one of the questions that is asked statewide, like, is it's a state like form? Yeah. Um, what kind of punishment would you like to see happen to this person who hurt you, or something in those mm-hmm. words? Very yeah. simplistic. Yeah. And I will tell you, I will tell you, I will tell you. Children, like, I'm going to say 80 percent have said, "I want them to tell. I want them to tell me they're sorry." That's what they want. Now, do they have the brain development to understand law? No. No, they do not. Right? That's why we have caregivers. That's why we have guardian ad litems. That's why we have therapists and caseworkers and legal advocates. Right? We have to protect that person. Right? But they understand. What is it that you want from this person? Like, I'll say, if you had a magic wand, and I use a little magic wand back here, right? What would you want? And I just, I want them to just say they're sorry for hurting me. Now, some kids get really creative. Some kids will say, I do want them to go to jail. They have an understanding. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, okay, well, what would that look like? And then they create this beautiful thing of what jail looks like to them. Mm-hmm. And how long they would want that person to be in jail. And that's, you know, each kid. But it is a beautiful thing. To understand, and if you think about it as an adult, what is it that we want when somebody has wronged us? Just at the basic level. We want somebody to acknowledge it. We want somebody to apologize for it. And we want somebody to say, I'm not going to do that again. Like, have you all ever been cut off in traffic before? Mm-hmm. Yep. Who hasn't? And you're like, oh, it's okay. Exactly. Versus the person who ignores, right? And then you're like, oh, what a fucking asshole. Yeah. Am I not right? Just the simple, Mm -hmm. like, oh, and how many times have I almost, and I'll go, oh, I'm so, right? And then you see, you see this expression change Mm -hmm. from one of anger, usually, because there's some assholes out there, Mm -hmm. to one of, yeah, acknowledge Mm -hmm. and accountability. Mm -hmm. That's, that's just the basic. Now, some of us, and I don't, if someone murdered my family, I ain't gonna lie, that's gonna try my little peace, love, and heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It goes back to that question you asked, you know? It's, it's hard to reconcile, like, criminal justice reform, we need empathy for everyone, but when someone does something as horrific as what we deal with on a daily basis, to murder, to how, yep, what is quality look like for that and I think mm. it's access to someone who can defend them accurately other people not not mm. getting yeah, not having access to paid lawyers let's <laughs> ignore the public defender let's just get rid of top paid lawyers you can stop being able well, to buy your way out of things paid. capitalism top Exactly. Ah! Every day. I know. Fuck you know, it. It's so not fair. You I'm know, sorry. I'm getting angry. No, it, it isn't. It isn't fair. It's not fair. And it's, it's just, again, if we took, if we, you know, at the front end, you know, if we, mm-hmm. if we gave everyone access to just things that should be given to the right, right as a human being, you should never have to steal food. That's it's crazy. Human, yeah, it's a human right. You know, we have, to, we have to pay, you know, we pay taxes to pay for jail food. Let's pay taxes to pay for food when they're small. Mm-hmm. So they're never hungry and angry. You know, like, it just. 
Make it make sense, right? Yeah. Isn't that like the yeah. little... Make it make sense. And how do we have an attorney that defends Season them four. against capitalism? Season four, make it make, make sense. sense. Yeah, boom. And <laughs> thank you, Megan. You just gave us season four. <laughs> and Megan, I think that is a perfect closing note because I'm looking at the time and oh, yes. always I get really deep into these conversations. Yeah, thank you for know. being here. <laughs> <sighs> yes, thank you so much. This thank was... For Hanks. Yes. This was delightful... This was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. We, we're going to ask you, how would you feel about... Rapid fire questions. Okay, okay. Sure. I got my three. Do you want to... If you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? Ooh, to make everyone around me feel safe. <gasps> that Ooh. is the sweetest thing I've ever heard. That's going to be the best one. <laughs> That's the best one so far. Okay. What is your favorite gadget that you own? Ooh, gadget like a like a you get to just you get to decide what is a gadget. Nobody else gets to decide. Oh my gosh, there's so many things. Um, mm-hmm. you're gonna be like, this is weird. <laughs> I love weird. Um, it's a little like sort of like a Swiss Army knife, mm-hmm. but it, it changes. The screwdriver, like the what bit you need. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Pop the new one in. Yes, I love it. I love it. It's cool. Yeah, because you Megan, know. you're so weird. <laughs> but I love that thing. Like when it goes missing, I'm like, where is it? Like, I'm like, who touched it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I love that thing. If you could be any animal in the world, what is your animal? Oh, my God. Okay. Maybe. Well, that's, well, yeah, manatee. <laughs> that's an animal. Yeah. Yeah. Manatee. They're, they're adorable. Yeah. They just kind of float. Yeah, exactly. They're peaceful and they're Relax. friendly. They like, they just, they let people pet them. And my favorite fact about is that back, you know, way back when, when people could get scurvy really bad at sea, they used to like hallucinate and think that they were mermaids. Uh-huh. And I love that that big, full body mammal <laughs> was like seen it, you know, like I just love that. And I just, yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite go-to beverage? Dr. Pepper. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. All right, and then the last one, who is your favorite band slash musician? Fiona Apple. Okay. That's the first two on here. That is the first. Yeah. I like that. Good. I like her. She's funny, and she's just cool, chill, but super awkward in interviews. And so I just want to relate to you, sister. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Thank you, guys. It was so fun. It was. Thanks for being here. And like we always say to all of our listeners out there or viewers now, because we're on YouTube, yeah. check us out. Um, you know, you can change the world tomorrow just by listening today. So have a beautiful day. Bye. Bye. Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Roddy Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.